It's the midweek. Happy Wednesday. It is Johnny Crane's birthday today. Happy birthday, Sir Crane. This is the Rich Report bringing you the richest content across entertainment. Oh my. The Dodgers are now three wins away from their first World Series championship in 32 years, and they did it in dominant fashion in game one. Let's jump right into it. World Series game one, Dodgers win eight to three. Clayton Kershaw looking like his vintage self with his nasty slider striking out eight and seven of them came off of that filthy slider. Mookie Betts was Mookie Betts. Cody Bellinger kicked the game off with a two-run home run. It was it, It's looking good for Los Angeles. Don't want to count your chickens too early, but it's a good start to the World Series. They won game one in 2017, so you can't. You can't really expect anything for future games. But, Johnny, it's a good start. What were your thoughts, overall thoughts, on game one of the World Series? Well, as in years past, really nothing has really changed this year. There's a reason pretty much every expert out there thought the Dodgers were the best team coming into the season. Why is that? Well, they are the most complete team. They have excellent starting pitching a great offense, and a good enough bullpen in some people's eyes. And we pretty much saw all three of those facets in action in game one. Clayton Kershaw, with his postseason lows in the past, had a great outing. And aside from a hanging breaking ball in the game, he was practically nigh-hittable at all. No one could hit him at all with that filthy slider like you mentioned. The offense with Mookie Betts, Max Muncy with a good game, Cody Bellinger with another home run. The star power is there. The star power hit, and the star power definitely produced. And then the bullpen, you know, was a little bit shaky in the later innings, but they kept it down, they toned it down, and they were able to shut down the race for the rest of the game. So it was pretty much all guns a-blazing for the Dodgers, really. All of their – everything was working for them. That's really all it really, really boils down to. The issue I had with them going into this World Series, as you did, and I imagine a lot of other people did – was their bullpen? Would their bullpen hold up against the really big and really powerful Tampa Bay's Tampa Bay lineup that really hits home runs? Well, you don't really have to go to the bullpen when Clayton Kershaw is as dominant as he was. So even though Clayton Kershaw probably could have went another inning or so, still the bullpen did get some work in, so it's good. I mean, this is a complete team, and it was a complete victory for the Dodgers. Yeah, and you have to – contribute that to their explosive fifth inning where they scored four runs and it was all small ball. It was all small ball. Dodgers really were patient at the plate. Tyler Glass now only gives you one pitch to hit per at bat. Everything else is outside of the strike zone and the Dodgers weren't biting at all. They were not biting at all. They walked six times. Although Glass out did look good at points, he just couldn't find the strike zone, and Dodgers weren't biting after they got to the second round of at-bats, and they exploded in the fourth inning. Mookie Betts was Mookie Betts. That pretty much suicide squeeze by Max Muncy, although it wasn't a bunt, to get Mookie Betts home as he was running. You know, he was halfway to home plate before the ball even got off the bat. He scores, and the Dodgers just took over from there. It was over by the time he crossed home plate. Uh, free tacos for everybody, by the way, as Mookie Betts stole two bases as well. Just phenomenal play 
from him. But yeah, Clayton Kershaw. Johnny, let me ask you this. I I don't know if the demons are gone completely yet, but he has been satisfactory this postseason. Satisfactory. Three and one. He's done his job. He's done what a future Hall of Famer should do in the postseason, and that's do your job, be great, lead the team, and win the first game, strike first. Do you think the demons are lifted on Clay Kershaw's October history? Well, I guess it depends on how you define lifted. If this is the only game we see Clayton Kershaw pitch in, looks like the Dodgers sweep the Rays, which could definitely be possible if game one was any indicator. If this was it for Clayton Kershaw, I mean, as someone that isn't a Dodger fan, as someone who's just a neutral observer, I thought he was a Hall of Famer to begin with. But to some, like you, you know, you thought, oh, he needs to really get over at least some of the postseason humps in order to really solidify himself as a Hall of Famer. I think if the Dodgers come back and win the World Series, even if Clayton Kershaw has to pitch again, and even if he pitches a little more subparly than he did in other postseason outings, I think he's done decently. I mean, his ERA in the postseason is well under four, which, you know, is a much better indicator and a much better postseason than in other postseasons. St. Louis Cardinals, say hello. But, I mean, when you look at game one, what I really saw, like you mentioned, was that dominant slider. Really, when you look at the movement of his breaking pitches and the pinpoint accuracy of that fastball, it really went back to when he pitched against the Milwaukee Brewers way back in the opening rounds when they played, when the Dodgers played the Brewers. He was really dominant then, and we saw it pretty much again against a much better and I guess more power-oriented Tampa Bay lineup than Milwaukee is. So, I mean, there's still a lot of series to be played. It's very likely Clayton Kershaw will pitch again, even if it's in a bullpen kind of role, if the Dodgers are trying to close it out. But, I mean, have the Demons been lifted? I think to a degree, yes. I think that he had to really pitch in a prime time situation. And even with crowd capacity is limited, even with all the different issues that this season has brought, I think you got to give Clayton Kershaw some credit. You know, every, every player has had to deal with adversity, and Clayton Kershaw has had to deal with the adversity that is this season, in addition to having to deal with all the other comments about him and his postseason history. So I think some of it has been lifted, and I think he needs to be credited for that. Now, I want to know your thoughts on Glassdown's performance, because this is the first time he had allowed six earned runs since September of 2018. He wasn't terrible, but the Dodgers just weren't fighting on any of his pitches outside the strike zone. That's where he thrives. A lot of the AL teams are very undisciplined and they're going to swing at a lot of stuff outside the zone. It's a, the AL is a very uh, strikeout heavy league compared to the NL. So is this just a case of the NL and how disciplined hitters are or did glass now just maybe just isn't ready for the world series scene yet. I think there are two factors going in play here for glass. Now, number one, I think you need to give the Dodgers lineup very good credit. They are a really, really, really good and patient team. They take a lot of pitches. They take a lot of walks. They make good contact. They make a lot of foul balls. I think you have to give the Dodgers some credit in the fact that they made glass now work. They made glass now pitch in the zone. Like you said, they laid off the breaking pitches. They laid off the fastballs that were over 100 miles an hour low in the zone, inside the zone. So I think 
in that regard, you have to give the Dodgers some credit. They really made them work, and their offense was a complete offense. This is why a lot of folks are saying the Dodgers' offense going into the season was one of the better offenses. So in that regard, some of it is out of Glasnow's control. You just have to tip your cap and move on. On the other side, the other factor that is going against Glasnow is a problem I have with a lot of pitchers that only are primarily two-pitch pitchers, two-pitch starting pitchers in particular. Yes, you can have a fastball. Yes, you can have a good breaking ball, a good changeup. But at some point, like in the postseason, when you're going to be facing much better offenses, you're going to have to have a third pitch. And you not necessarily need a third pitch to get strikeouts or to get outs, but you need a third pitch to keep the offense honest and to keep the offense looking, keep them, keep them going, keep them questioning what's going to come next. And if you only have two pitches, well, mathematically and theoretically, you're, there's less for the hitters to look for. But Tampa Bay, well, what was one of their starters that they had later, earlier, several seasons ago that was primarily a two-pitch guy? Oh, someone by the name of Chris Archer. Chris Archer was very, very good, but in the heated moments, in the top dog moments, how did he perform? Not too well, I would say. He could definitely perform a lot better. The two-pitch pitchers, like Glasnow is at this point with his fastball and his breaking ball, his curveball, it's really good. He'll be an all-star with those two pitches, but if he wants to take it to the next level and perform in the postseason, I think he needs a third pitch. Whether it's a split finger, whether it's a changeup, something soft, I'm not too sure. But that just diversifies his arsenal, and it keeps the offense looking more than what the Dodgers were doing in game one. Now, this is now, I think, a legit debate as to who this generation's star player is. We've all said Mike Trout for years. But here's the thing about Mike Trout, and we were talking about this last night. Mike Trout has not contributed to a playoff victory. In 2014, when the Kansas City Royals won the World Series, they were a wildcard team after defeating the Oakland A's in one of the best wildcard games we had ever seen. And then they would go on to sweep the overall number one seeded Los Angeles Angels. Yes, swept them in the ALDS. Mike Trout was on that team, did not play well. So, Johnny, I will ask you, Mookie Betts is an MVP. He's a World Series champion and now could be well on his way to a second World Series championship. And he also got people free tacos twice now. 2018, he did it. And 2020, he has done it. So I ask you, is it time to put Mookie Betts on the same level as Mike Trout? Or are we putting Mookie Betts over him now? Because Mookie Betts is a winner while Mike Trout still has not won in October. Well, I definitely think Mookie Betts is close to the same level as Mike Trout. Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, and maybe Cody Bellinger after, well, after this year, probably not. It's pretty much those two players as the top players in the game of baseball today. So putting him on the same pedestal, I really have no argument with that there. Now, the problem I have with uh, this argument you're making about, oh, well, you know, Mike Trout hasn't performed in the postseason. He hasn't had a winning team well baseball is a team sport my friend and a team sport it is the los angeles angels pitching if you could call it pitching 
since 2014 has been pretty mediocre, to put it nicely, subpar, to put it more bluntly. Since 2014, their collective ERA, when you combine the relievers and their starters, is well over 4.30, well over 4.5 almost. So Mike Trout can't pitch. You can't put him on the mound and tell him to collect 10 strikeouts and to go six innings every five days. So I think in that regard, you have to give Trout you know, you can't put him and blame him for the issues on the rest of the team that are out of his control. You can't do that. That's unfair to Trout. And if Mookie Betts was in the same position, I'd be saying the exact same thing. Hey, However, hey, should we, should we, uh, well, I mean, baseball is a team sport, but it doesn't help when uh, the sort of the uh, proclaimed go to this generation goes one for 12 in that series. So, I mean, yeah, it's was, a team sport and the pitching's bad, but when the most runs a team scores in a single game is three and your star player is one for 12, that's not really good for October. Hold the phone. Small sample size alert. Small sample size alert. This was six plus years ago when Mike Trout was much younger. He had a lot less experience than he does now. I remember you and me – look, you and me have argued back and forth about uh, Dodger players you hate and Dodger players you like. You used to hate Corey Seager, but what has Corey Seager done this postseason? Well, he only won NLCS MVP, hit a dozen-plus home runs, it feels like, and now you love him. Well, maybe you need to give Trout a little bit of the same love. Yes, he was subpar in the series against Kansas City, but that was six-plus years ago. If you put him on a winning team now with good starting pitching, with a good bullpen, maybe he has a Corey Seager-like performance in the postseason. We won't know because his team around him hasn't really been built right. But, yes, you just have to – it's very close to me to get back to the main question here. Would you take Mike Trout or Mookie Betts to start a franchise? Or who would, who's the best player in the game today? It's very close to me. Trust me, it really is. I think I'm still going to give the edge to Trout right now, I think, just given the overall counting numbers he's had. Obviously, he hasn't had the postseason success that Betts has had. That's one thing Betts has over him. But, again, that's sort of a team factor that is out of Trout's control. If you really isolate both players – Mookie Betts is really closing the gap, but I think Trout still has a little bit more leeway just because of the track record that he has had has been much more durable and much longer than Betts has had. But again, that's sort of out of Betts' control too. So it really goes both ways, but right now I'll take Trout. Game two is tonight, 5 o'clock on Fox. It's Blake Snell versus Tony Gonsolin. Johnny, what does Blake Snell need to do to avoid an explosive inning for the Dodgers and have them uh, break open the game like they did in game one? Well, he has to have the control. A lot of the issues with Blake Snell in the past have come back to the control, the walk issues. And when he won his Cy Young several years ago, he had the walk issues well under control, no pun intended. If he can get the breaking pitches down, pitch well inside, keep the Dodgers hitters looking for different pitches, especially to those right-handers, I think Blake Snell can definitely succeed. He has the velocity, he has the movement, and he definitely has the deception as being he's a left-hander. So I think he needs to mix it up, not really fall in love with the fastball, not really go with just the breaking ball. He has to mix it up, establish the pitches early. If he does that, I think he'll do quite well. But I think he needs to keep the Dodgers guessing because the Dodgers, like I mentioned with Glassnow, with only two pitches – 
at some point they were sitting on one thing only. If Blake Snell wants to succeed and not get knocked out early, he needs to keep the Dodgers guessing. So I think if he can do that, diversify it a little bit, I think the Blake Snell will be really good for Tampa Bay. And I think Tampa Bay's offense, if they can supplement a decent start from Snell, I think they can potentially tie this series up. Moving on to the NFL. Oh, man, the jokes write themselves. The Dallas Cowboys were absolutely throttled at home by the Arizona Cardinals. Kyler Murray could chuck the ball out of AT&T Stadium. He was that inaccurate, and they still won by 28. The Cowboys are bad, ladies and gentlemen. They're bad. They were already bad when they had the best offense in the NFL with Dak Prescott, and now they're just – I mean, could uh, I – the questions are, could – Clemson or Alabama beat the Cowboys right now. I mean, it's a legit question we could ask. The Cowboys are that awful. Andy Dalton preferred uh, tight end Dalton Schultz over the best trio of wide receivers in the league with Michael Gallup, Amari Cooper, and CeeDee Lamb. The defense, uh, are there 11 men on defense for Dallas? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> this, this team is bad. They're still leading the NFC East, but they're bad. Now we have potential coaching issues and coaches not ad adapting in game, not making the proper adjustments. It's, it, it's a disaster in Dallas to say the least. Johnny crane, our resident cowboy fan. Oh man. He heard, he heard it all. He heard the jokes in Monday. We gave it to him. We did not hold back. Mr. Crane. What the hell is happening in North Texas? Let's start with the offense first. Look, Andy Dalton was a backup quarterback for a reason. When you lose your primary quarterback, I don't care what team you are, if you lose your QB1, you're going to have some offensive issues moving forward. That's just how it is. You can have as many weapons in the world, but a backup quarterback does not get as many reps or as many in-snap game reps, as I mentioned, that the QB1 does. That's just as logical as it is. I think moving forward, the offense will be – okay maybe not world ending maybe not terrible either I think they'll definitely score points but the issue so much isn't the offense it's the defense look the NFL record for the most points giving up in a season is the 1981 Colts they gave up 533 the Cowboys are on pace to give up 581 are there 11 men on the field I'm not too sure either Going into the season, even before you took the injuries out of the equation, the defense was a little skeptical. The depth, I'm not sure, was there. The secondary, they let Byron Jones walk, who was going to really take over the reins in the secondary. I haven't really shown that. And when you add in the injury issues, the front seven really hasn't gotten to the quarterback as much as they have wanted it's not looking good for Dallas. Yes, they're on top of the NFC East, but at this point, look, I'm going to quell this notion right now. I don't care about winning NFC East titles. Dallas Cowboy fans should not care about winning NFC East titles. With the roster they had going into the season, NFC East titles should be on the least of their concerns. With that roster, they just should have been going for a Super Bowl. The NFC East is bad. It doesn't matter if the Cowboys are on top. If the defense is anything like it has been, and I see no reason why it would change, it's going to be a long and bumpy road for the Dallas Cowboys. And then we have the coaching issues. 
the lack of adaptation, so to speak. Now, again, I think Mike McCarthy is going to be okay, but his hire of Mike Nolan for defensive coordinator, I'm not too sure about that, but again, it's tough. You know, this is a very unique season with COVID. There was no preseason. There was no real opportunity to really check out what you had on defense before week one of the season started. So even still, the lack of adaptation on the fly has been apparent, I think. Whether that's a Mike McCarthy problem, whether that's a Mike Nolan problem, whether that's both of their problems, I'm not too sure. But you can't really fire them. At least you can't fire both. Because if you do that, you're just back at square one. A lot of your players are a year past their prime now, so you wasted a year practically. So it's a very tricky situation. I think they have to stick with McCarthy just for stability's sake. But maybe they need to change the defensive coordinator. Maybe they need to go with another direction. Because when you're giving up practically historic numbers of points, something has to change. I'm not sure what, but... The status quo does not look good, and maybe something needs to be done about it. I'm just spitballing, though. Now, as a Cowboy fan, would you rather see the t- team tank and not win the division or finish potentially 5-11, 6-10, and still walk out as NFC East champions? Well, that's kind of the problem, is it? Look, I'm fine. When you lose your QB1 for the year, the defense obviously doesn't have the depth to contend moving forward. The season still has a ways to go, so it potentially could get even worse, dare I say. It wouldn't be out there to sort of rebuild on the fly, rebuild for half a season, one season, come back with a better defense, a more revamped offensive line, which has had health issues, and come back full guns a-blazing in, say, a season, a season and a half. The problem is, is the division. Now, if I am correct, I'm 99% correct, when you look at the draft order and draft determination on where you're going to pick in the upcoming draft, if the Cowboys finish 6-10, and 10, theoretically that means they get a top 15 pick, maybe even a top 10 pick, but if they finish first in the NFC East with a 6-10 and 10 record, they're not going to pick in the top 10 because playoff teams don't pick in that top 10 echelon because they're in a, in a playoff position. So instead of picking, say, eight, the Cowboys could be picking 18th. And that big of a difference in the draft is the difference between maybe a star player on defense and maybe just an okay player on defense. So I'm fine with the Cowboys rebuilding, but the division, as bad as it has been, might be holding them back to the point where they have to sort of contend and go for it because they're not going to get that top pick otherwise. So. Again, it's a very tricky situation. I'm for rebuilding, but, yeah, it's a lot easier said than done. Moving on to the Miami Dolphins, a questionable decision to say the least. It'll be Ryan Fitzpatrick going to the bench and former Alabama quarterback Tua Tagovailoa will now get the start as a Dolphins quarterback. Dolphins are at 3-3, three and three, so... Brian Flores trying to make a playoff push potentially with his rookie quarterback. Now, Johnny Crane has been adamant that this is a terrible decision. I don't know. I don't know, really. I give to a chance. I think I think it is too early, but I'm not going to be like, oh, well, this is the end of Miami. It's terrible for Tua's development. I don't believe it that way. I think Fitzpatrick, regardless of if he's starting or 
on the bench can be a good mentor for Tua. It just comes down to how healthy is Tua because he's still, you know, you could say, oh, well, he's 100% ready to go. Well, yeah, he hasn't been in the full contact game yet. So you can say he's healthy and all that, but how is that hip going to respond when it first takes when it takes its first hits? That's, that's a question that we will see this weekend. Johnny, you are very upset about this decision, so I want to know why and do you think Tua can keep the keep Miami at a respectable pace for the remainder of the season? Well, Tua definitely has the talent. He definitely has the arm strength, and I think he definitely has the pocket presence, offensive line doing their job permitting, to really take Miami to new heights. And what I don't like about this move is very simple. Now, look, let me, before I even get to that, let me backtrack a little bit. I'm fine giving Tua some quote unquote garbage time snaps. I'm fine giving them some end game experience like we saw in the last game on Sunday. I'm all for that. I'm not think I don't really think you have to hold them back entirely and keep them on the bench the entire year without getting any snaps. I think that's a little naive. And I think that that's definitely could stunt some development. Now, where I do have the problem, and this could be where the issue arises. If Tua Dagovaloa is fine in his upcoming game, okay, that's fine. But what the Dolphins really need to be careful of and what they need to go, they need to do with a fine-tooth comb for the rest of the season is in a game-by-game basis how Tua has been in the previous game and should we start him again in the next game after that. Because overexposure is one thing. I mean, look what happened to Dwayne Haskins with the Washington football team several years ago. But if you're not careful, and again, when you look at Tua's injury he sustained at Alabama, that is a potentially career-altering injury at the, at the slightest and a career-ending issue at the extremist. So if you're not careful, if that hip issue comes up again, then you practically wasted a pick in the draft to get to a, and you're practically back at square one trying to get a franchise quarterback. Do I think that Tua can be a franchise quarterback? Yes, but if they're not careful and they rush him and he gets injured again, then that's definitely not going to be the case. And the problem I have with starting him out of the gate like this, so to speak, is that Ryan Fitzpatrick hasn't been bad. He's had over 1,500 passing yards, 12 total touchdowns, He's having a career year in some statistical categories. He's had a good pocket presence. He has a good arm. I think the Dolphins could have gone in a direction that the Kansas City Chiefs did with Mahomes several years ago. What did Mahomes do? He sat on the bench for a year, got a few snaps here and there, and Alex Smith passed the reins over to him next year after he started a full year with Mahomes on the bench. Now, I know that's sort of a specific case because Mahomes is practically in a class of his own, but with Tua's talent that he has with that arm strength with that pocket presence and the fact that he's left-handed that's almost a special case in itself as well so I don't think it's that far out there to really compare and say well Fitzpatrick can start this year and Tua can start fresh next year I don't think it's that taboo and I thought the Dolphins should have gone with that but if they're going to give him the ball for game for a game okay but you need to do it on a game-by-game basis and look very carefully and very discreetly at any potential injuries that could pop up, whether in the ankle, whether in the hip, whether in the arm, whether in the shoulder, because Tua has had an injury issue with Alabama, and I don't think it's really in Miami's best interest to see those injuries crop up again in any fashion. 
Josh Allen versus Lamar Jackson. Two quarterbacks that, especially this year, looking kind of questionable now. Lamar Jackson, obviously former MVP, but now this year, four straight games, under 200 passing yards. Yes, he's running for over 100, but at the end of the day, especially when it becomes a postseason, this is not going to be quarterback play. If they're behind, it's going to win games. Baltimore has to figure out how to utilize their passing offense and make it effective because it's not going to work come postseason time. Josh Allen had a chance to prove that this is the franchise year for him, his breakout year. It started off well, but then Tennessee and Kansas City became sort of whistleblowers and exposed uh, his still lack of maturity and lack of discipline. So now both of these men coming into question, but the question we want to ask, John, the question I'm going to ask Johnny and ask all of you if you want to think about it, who are you taking as your franchise quarterback, Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson? Johnny, I'll start with you. Well, to start, both of their talents are through the roof. But if you're going to boil it down to one particular area, Jackson, to me, is a scrambling quarterback. Allen, to me, is a shooting quarterback. Now, look, Lamar Jackson is a dual-threat quarterback as they come, and I'm all for dual-threat quarterbacks. He has really good rushing capabilities. He has a strong arm when he can be accurate with it. He has all the tools there. But the problem I have with Lamar Jackson, not only this year and moving forward as the future unfolds and he gets older, is not so much stuff that's out of his control. I mean, when you look at his physique, at his height, and you look at his weight, to me, all it really takes is one bad shot block, one bad sack, and with the height and the frame and the weight that he has or the lack thereof, he might not be the same quarterback again. If I'm going to draft a quarterback, I want a quarterback that's not only has high upside, but I want a quarterback that is durable moving forward. Because if you're just injured all the time and you're not the same when you come back from any injury – then what's the point in drafting you? If I'm going to get a franchise quarterback, you need to be good from start to finish. And while I'll take Allen here, it's very simple. Allen has much more height. He has much more muscle, much more durability, much better physique, in my opinion, to take those inevitable quarterback hits and quarterback sacks that are going to happen to him. When you add in the fact that he has the rawest and almost purest arm in the game, aside from Mahomes, Arm strength is key, and when you look at the NFL becoming more and more of a passing league and more and more of a vertical league with all the vertical passes going all the way down the field, you need the strength to make those throws to begin with. And I think while Lamar Jackson's arm is definitely capable, I think, it's nowhere near the strength of Allen's. So when you really boil it down, I think Allen's overall physique, durability, frame, and arm, I think will translate and age a lot better than Lamar Jackson's mobility and scrambling techniques that he has done up to at this point in his career. Yeah, I'd also argue that Josh Allen is a scrambler as well. He's got the much better arm and more accurate arm, but he's also a scrambler as well. But he has the better physique that can handle contact like that, while Lamar Jackson's more so on the skinnier side and more built like a wide receiver than he is a quarterback. And that's nothing against Lamar Jackson. It's just Baltimore – needs to figure out how they can make the passing game more effective and, you know, be the emphasis over Lamar Jackson having to scramble 400 yards to pull out wins every single week. Because we've seen in the postseason, 
the last two years, it has not worked out. Baltimore has underperformed and they have not met expectations. A team that went 14 and two last year got trounced by the Tennessee Titans in the AFC divisional. Moving on to NASCAR, it's, it was a NASCAR news dump on Monday. Kyle Larson has been reinstated officially by NASCAR. He is going to return to the Cup Series in 2021. His, the uh, reinstatement will be effective January 1st. He's, I mean, a lot of rumors say he's is expected to go to Hendrick Motorsports and possibly replace the Bowman in the 88, but that 88 could be rebranded to the 5, the 25, his dirt racing number and 57. Just so many rumors floating around with Larson. So, Johnny, are you okay with Larson being reinstated? And uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think is best fit for his return? Should it be a total rebrand or should he take over a number that a previous driver has had? This is a very hard question to answer because I don't want to talk for everyone here. Why Larson got practically expelled from NASCAR to begin with was a very big social and racial issue. When you add everything that's happened in society, it's a very disappointing thing that happened for Larson's sake, from a professional's sake, that a lot of people look up to. However, in my opinion, I think there is some room for redemption. And I think he has that opportunity, and I think he should be given that opportunity. Now, with that said, what should be a best fit? Even though he's reinstated, even though he's coming back, I think at some point you still have a reputation that you still have to gain back from the general population, if you ever will. And to do that, I think you might have to start with a rebrand. If you give Larson a historic number like the five, like Casey Kane drove, if you give him the 88, which has a lot of historical significance as well, and while that's good on paper, maybe he has to start more at square one, I think. And maybe that means a complete rebrand. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Maybe he is with a rebrand for a bit, and then he eventually transitions to one of the popular and historic numbers of NASCAR once he re fully regains the trust of the NASCAR community, if he ever does. I think of if he can do that and go in that direction, I think it's a really good option for him to have. But regardless, he's reinstated in the Cup Series, which is a win in itself for him. From what I've read about what he's done, I feel as if he has taken a step forward in his life socially and I guess in regard to common sense and just pure dignity. So I think this is a great opportunity for him to redeem himself, but maybe he has to redeem himself with a clean slate and a brand new number. And then maybe once he does that, he goes to another number. Yeah, I agree. I would like the rebrand, you know, 57 would look nice. It's still going to be, you know, the 88 car and equipment and all that, but it's, Definitely, I think it would be better for Larson just have a clean slate, new look, new everything entering 2021 because of just, you know, the history he has and sponsors, you know, need to give him that opportunity to have a clean slate. And if he goes to a new number, it's going to turn those sponsors already attached to that number. Uh, it's going to make them question whether or not they want to be a part of that or not yet, if it's, if it's time yet. After Clint Boyer announces retirement from full-time racing, Chase Briscoe steps in to replace him in the 14 Stewart Haas Racing Ford. This is a 
great decision, in my opinion. Chase Briscoe has dominated the Xfinity Series this season and is looking like he's on his way to a championship. But obviously, the championship four could change that all up in Phoenix because he was not really a factor in the March race. But all that aside, nine wins this season. He's definitely earned his cup ride. Johnny Crane, can the 14 finally find some success and be a consistent winner? Or or is this another cookie-cutter move and will the 14 just not see much improvement as to when Clint Boyer was in the car for the last couple of years? Well, as you mentioned, Cameron, practically, and as we mentioned in the previous podcast we did on Monday, Chase Briscoe has practically monopolized the Xfinity Series. He's had nothing else to prove there, whether he wins the championship or not, and he finally has a solidified cup ride for next season. Now, for the 14 team, I think this is a great move. And while Clint Bohr was a good floor driver, you know you could get some decent starts from him at the minimum. I think with Chase Briscoe, you add a little more upside there. You have a little more top of the field, a lot more speed, a lot more maneuverability. Now, of course, there's equipment involved, funding involved. So at some point, you have to give the car some benefit of the doubt, too. But also, you have to give the talent and the driver the benefit of the doubt as well. And I think Chase Briscoe, compared to Clint Boyer, you get a much younger driver, a much better driver, a much more aggressive driver. And with the way NASCAR is becoming faster and faster, more pass-oriented, I think you have to go for more of the big moves. And I think Chase Briscoe has the aggressiveness to make those big moves. And that's nothing against Clint Boyer. I just think that Briscoe brings a much higher ceiling than Boyer ever could at this point in his career. And that's why I think he's going to the booth. So I think for the 14 team, this is a great move. I don't really think it's a cookie cutter move. I think it's a slam dunk move. I think it's a expected move because if they weren't going to make the move, another team was, and that just puts the 14 team at a much bigger disadvantage. And, but they take that disadvantage away by getting them and poaching him from any other team getting them. Yeah. I only said cookie cutter because I mean, who knows what the 14 is going to do. The 14 has just been, you know, a, really a playoff fill over the last couple of years. Nothing against Clint Boyer, but it's just, you know, we're sort of expecting more from the Stuart Haas Ford. We expect them to be the best team year in and year out. But aside from Kevin Harvick, it's really been a snooze fest from the 10, the 14, and the 41, really. And finally, Eric Jones. It's been confirmed today he will be replacing Bubba Wallace in the 43 Richard Petty Motorsport Chevy for 2021. It's it's really a risk for Eric Jones. The 43 has a history of, you know, underperforming. It's really been a mid-pack car, mid-pack to lower of the bottom of the field car. Bubba Wallace obviously saw improvements, but the sponsorships the 43 had, those were Bubba Wallace's. So Bubba will be taking those to his new team with Denny Hamlin and Michael Jordan. Eric Jones will just have what he has now. I think Craftsman is with him still, but that's about it. Really, aside from, you know, Victory Junction for Victory Junction, Victory Junction and STP for the 43 outside, he's not really carrying much sponsorship. So really, where is the financial benefit for Eric Jones there? He's he's a playoff driver, but unfortunately didn't make it this year. Uh, Very, very down here this year. So I'm assuming that's why Joe Gibbs gave him the boot. So it, it's a risk. I think Eric Jones is a really good driver, but going to the 43 is a massive, massive risk. I like the risk, so maybe the 43 can be competitive, you know, and be a top 10 car next year, but I don't see that happening. 
Johnny Crane, what are your thoughts on Eric Jones making this decision? Well, as I mentioned in the baseball segment, and as I mentioned very briefly with Chase Briscoe, it's a team sport. And at some point, the car has to do its job in addition to what the driver has to do. And as we saw this year and in other years, even with the sponsors Bubba Wallace had, the 43 team had some, should you say, funding issues, mechanical issues, car issues, pretty much everything. And even though, yes, Eric Jones is a solid driver, but as you mentioned, Bubba Wallace takes all those sponsors with him to the new team, and now Eric Jones practically has to start from scratch with that 43 that has already had mechanical issues and funding issues to begin with. So even though Eric Jones might be a good driver, at some point the car has to do its job too. Can the car do its job and not break down and do they have the funding and the pieces to get that car back on the track if it sustains at least some damage? So I'm not sure if he can do it. I think he's a good driver. I think he's a capable driver. He's shown that he can perform at a high level. But can he overcome any issues that the car might bring? I think it's going to be a work in progress. I think long term, if he stays with the 43, I think it could be a good move. But to get there might be a little bumpy here and there. And he'll have to get the sponsors, get the funding. If the car looks good and the car is good, I think Jones will be fine. But if the car isn't good, I'm not sure if Jones's talent can really overtake and overcome the mechanical problems. That will do it for this edition of The Rich Report. I know goodbyes are hard. I know they're hard. But we will be back on Friday. Make sure to wish Johnny Crane a happy birthday. Make sure to also make fun of him for being a Cowboys fan. That should be the priority. And then wish him a happy birthday. Yes, Mr. Crane, this is what you get for being a Cowboy fan. So expect to take it. We'll be back on Friday. Everybody's favorite segment is back in Fruit Loop Fridays. Looking forward to it. And we'll preview everything happening coming up this weekend. See you then. Have a great rest of your day.